difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Scott Tobias, here again with... Genevieve Kosky. Keith Epps. In our last episode, we followed a degenerate gambler who takes desperate measures to get himself out of hock in the killing of a Chinese bookie. Today, we're talking about another screw-up in the same spot in Uncut Gems, the new film by Josh and Benny Safdie, the directors of Good Time and Heaven Knows What. If you're familiar with the Safdie brothers, you know they put a premium on intensity and hyperaggression, from the performances to the soundtrack to the grimy street realism, which recalls a different era in New York filmmaking. Uncut Gems is by far their biggest production to date, but their aesthetic hasn't changed a bit. Adam Sandler stars as Howard Ratner, the proprietor of a jewelry store in New York's Diamond District in 2012. As the film opens, he already owes money to many shady lenders around town, but he believes he's found the answer to pull himself out of debt. He's ordered an uncut opal from an Ethiopian mine that he believes to be worth hundreds of thousands of dollars at auction. When he shows off the rock to Kevin Garnett, who's playing himself, the starting center of the Boston Celtics in the NBA playoffs, Garnett believes it will bring him good luck, and he persuades Howard to let him borrow it. That arrangement sets off a complicated series of loans and bets that Howard attempts in a last-ditch attempt to get various lowlifes off his back, including his own brother-in-law, played by Eric Bogosian. And as his already bad relationship to his wife, played by Edita Menzel, sours further, he turns to his employee and mistress Julia, played by Julia Fox, to help him get out of trouble. We'll see how well he does after the break. Is it too late? I'm done. That means nothing. It meant nothing. Please. Give me another shot. You like to win, right? This is no different than that. Black June, power, nigga. This is my fucking way. You think I'm stupid, Howard? You and your whole fucking family. I heard you resurface your fucking swimming pool. You know how that makes me feel? Never resurface anything. I don't know who said that. I told you about how things were going to go. You like the way things are going now? That's my family. Get the kids out of the house. You having a good time? Yes. What did everyone think of Uncut Gems? This is one of those movies that always makes me think of that inventory we ran back at the AV Club back in 2007 of 24 great movies we never want to watch again. (laughs) (laughs) I basically had a two-hour panic attack watching this movie. (laughs) I had to... to, I try not to do this, particularly with films that we watch for the podcast, but this is one where I had to stop and get up and kind of give myself a breather a couple times during this movie. I think I've spoken before on the podcast about about sort of the fraught relationship I have with the very concept of gambling. And it's just like, (laughs) not a motivation I understand on any level. And characters who compulsively gamble inherently drive me up a wall, you know, and this is a very annoying character on top of that, a purposely annoying character, you know, like I'm speaking of Adam Sandler's uh, character, of course, there's been a lot of talk of how this is like, quote unquote, like his his most Adam Sandler role, you know, because it uh, sensibly sort of plays into the things that people maybe find annoying about him and find maybe some value in that. So like the gambling element, the Adam Sandler element, and then the Altman-esque people constantly talking over each other chaos element, which is Another thing that's just sort of difficult for me on a personal level, like I have a hard time when there's more than one conversation going on, being able to to stick to one. And this movie is just like nothing but overlapping conversations and ambient noise and loud buzzes and bangs. And, you know, it's just it's a very <laughs> noisy and chaotic film by design. And as I understand it, that is sort of what the, the Safdies do. And it's kind of taken to its extreme uh, here. I get it. I respect it. I definitely was never bored watching this movie, but I don't think it's an experience I could physically put myself through again anytime (laughs) soon. 
<laughs> I'm trying to think of. And ways. I guess I mean that as a compliment. I, I think that's. I, I, I kind of gather that's the reaction. What a that week they would you had. What a week. I'm trying to think of the ways we can bring in uh, Oni Mahoney and uh, California Split for future pairings, <laughs> just, just to break Genevieve. I actually, I, I've only seen this once, but I do want to take this ride again. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it is an intense experience. I don't know who compared it. I'd love to take credit for it. I don't think it was me, but but compared to the two hours of the, of the final scene of The Sopranos, but it really is what it feels like. It's that sense of dread over mm. everything. Although on top of that, someone who just makes one mistake after another. It's just like every everything, you know, uh, everything he does is, is a wrong decision. No, but, but no, it's not true. That's, it is the wrong decision. The, the, both of the big bets he makes in this movie yeah, are Yeah, he, he, he hits know, both times. Those but, are good bets. But no, but being in that situation, it's, 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 everybody else who, okay. it's everybody else who betrays him. Oh, okay, actually, it, actually, three big bets, because his first big bet is that opal, that uncut gem, because the thing about uncut gems is like you can't really tell if they're any good mm. until you have them and crack them open you know or in his case i guess it's like a window you can see through it but yeah. you know like he ordered this thing sight unseen you know it was a the opal itself is his his first gamble it's like the opening bet if, if you will mm. of this film okay yeah th- that being said he makes, <laughs> he makes some, some bets that should work out but if it just passed it's a very situation he's in i mean nothing made me more nervous than when it's fairly early on when he when he pawns Kevin Carnett's championship <laughs> ring. Pawns that's, like, that's like the moment where you're like, oh, oh, he's on another level. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the bad decision making. So he thinks that to go right for that not to be disastrous. And that's sort of that's sort of it. He's just, he's, <laughs> these calculations that require so many factors to line up for him not to end up in a horrible situation. Well, well let's consider this though. He is in a horrible situation when the film opens, he's already screwed, right? Yeah, I mean, true. it's not as if he's starting square at the beginning and then making these mistakes that drive him down. Like, he is in bad, bad shape. People want money from him, and he is already in scramble mode from the beginning, which is what makes this movie so extraordinary to me in that it is nonstop, and that it is nonstop tension because he is constantly on the move, constantly having to dig his way out of the hole that he's with the same shovel he's been digging himself into the hole. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's that aspect of it i wanted to give a little bit of background on that list that you referenced the inventory list because oh, yeah, uh, yeah. because that was a, a you hate that I, list don't you no that was the thing is that that list was pitched to me with all of these films and i was like i have all of those on dvd i watch them all right the time. yeah <laughs> and so and so this is my kind of movie and in uncut gems i just had a blast with this film i was laughing my way through a lot of it i thought it was i thought it was kind of a delight in a way that their other films are, are not as much but but it, i can see why how others why have a different perspective um but i really you also enjoy the occasional uh placing of a bet am i am i right I do Scott? enjoy i do like the bets i mean in the film is of course loaded with info i mean it's an nba it's a basketball movie mm-hmm. it is loaded with nba lore and specific I, I recognize the impulse i recognize um the importance of kg and his personality i mean it, it, you know, kevin garnett is just so perfectly cast he's quite good in the film but then also his persona in the league is someone of untouchable intensity of somebody who is always, you know, first to practice, last to leave, somebody who who will harangue his teammates, who will go absolutely nuts on the court. I mean, he's so competitive and so and wants to win all of the time. And so to throw him into the middle of this movie, you know, gives it that, you know, even more <laughs> of a bump, which you don't necessarily need, but it, it's there. And I think that's a really fine performance. But yeah, I, I really had a had a good time. <laughs> this film I'm, i think i think it's quite funny in spots a lot of performances i love too i mean sandler i mean i think the purest sandler performance to me is punch drunk love in terms of like a director in that case paul thomas anderson recognizing the core aspects of adam sandler as a screen presence anger really being the core of the mm-hmm. core of it and then drawing that out um, but i think this is a very fine piece of work from him too it, it's funny too because in a, other hands this could be a more conventional adam sandler movie because it's like you know he's he's a he's a jeweler he's in debt to the mob and oh kevin garnett has the one thing that can get him out <laughs> yeah because he thinks wacky gives, hijinks know, coming at supernatural powers or something and and, yeah. and, and, uh, and he's naked in the trunk of yes, his car yeah there's 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 high yeah there is hijinks uh there are are hijinks yeah. in, in, this, in this film. Oh, man, that whole sequence is so great. There's a sequence where he goes to his kid's play 
and there are gangsters who want him and were in the audience and he has a very bad conversation with them which ends with him being stripped of his clothes and thrown in his own trunk and having him to summon his wife it's just all again i think it's so again gut-wrenching but also very funny which is kind of what this film's mode is mm-hmm. before we move away from the basketball element of it i do want to skip to the end and talk about the big game you know mm-hmm. i mean there's a there's a couple of big games but the climactic game is it it's a finals right no she, she, she said cluelessly uh, 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 <laughs> uh, no Sixers celtics are both in the eastern conference okay. so it would have been it would have been a playoff series well uh clearly i am you know not a huge basketball watcher my my fiance is and so he really connected to that part of the movie when we watched it together but i was as a you know someone who doesn't really make a habit of watching sports i was so struck by that sequence of them watching this game from a few different perspectives because we're also getting uh, you know julia's story uh playing at the casino playing out there you, you know we kind of go through the whole game and the way that the story has built to that point I found it fascinating how it sort of artificially created in me the excitement that a lot of people feel who care about sports, who how they feel when they're watching a, a big game, you know, like because there were these added stakes of what, you know, what the story had, had brought us to this point. That game was a nail biter in a way that if there wasn't this element, I, you know, an idiot about basketball would have been like, eh, it looks like another basketball game to me. So I just, I, I think it, it, it kind of speaks to the alchemy of this film that it was able to create that sensation in me, someone who wouldn't feel that otherwise. So what I'm hearing is that to really get into sports, you need to put some money on the game. Yeah, <laughs> no, that's true. <laughs> you got to have some stakes. Uh, no, no, I'm, I'm good. If I want that experience, maybe that is the circumstance under which I would watch this movie again. But I mean, that's true of sports viewing in, in general. I, I've become kind of a, I'm a, NBA is my thing. I love the NBA more than, I love all lots of sports, but NBA is kind of my obsession. And the thing about, I've is I've become like a fan of no team. I've become a fan of just players and units and like seeing certain aesthetic things that I like about it, which is a very distancing way of looking at a game in the sense that like if you're a fan of a team, like your fiance is of the Chicago Bulls, you're really rooting hard for the Bulls to win every night and you're watching those games and that's that's your team. And then, of course, if, you, if you're gambling on the game, that's another element too. And so, that, so I, I can see that of just like of you need to have some stake in the game in order for the game to be exciting right. because the game in and of itself you know is just another game. So you know I wanted to get into the style of the movie because the style is so out there. It's not this is not a film that does anything halfway. This is a film that is pumped to 11 from the start. How do you I guess describe the style of it? It's in the mix. Oh sorry, it's right there in the middle of things. Yeah, I feel like it's pretty well summed up in that opening the transition from the opening scene in Africa kind of into the heart of the gem that comes out on the other side in Adam Sandler's colonoscopy. Like, <laughs> that, that just, that that feels like, I mean, and, and there, in between there's a sort of like psychedelic journey through a cosmic landscape that turns out to be his colon um, or turns into his colon, uh, which just feels like a very good encapsulation of the sort of, I don't want to say high-low aesthetic because that's not quite what's happening here, but there's a help me out guys uh, you're right in this i mean it's high yeah. low in the sense that like these are this is a very highly aestheticized movie an art film yeah. but at the same time they're trying to communicate a very street level realism which yeah. is their shtick i mean like that's what they yeah. did i mean you look at heaven knows what is a film about addiction that could be if you strip all of the effects of that film away would be a very straightforward, very grim, circle the drain kind of a movie. But they don't do that way. That way, They're maximalists, so they're going to add a lot of stuff to the soundtrack especially, but to the mm-hmm. camera movements. Gonna, there's just going to be a, an urgency to the, uh, there that's um, artificial in a way. It, you know, and of course, that opening also reminded me of Fight Club, right? That's the opening credit sequence of Fight Club, of where you're going through the synapses in somebody's brain as they're firing off, and then you end up exiting to this gun that you know, the person's pointing at his head, right? Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's a, like, don't we also get that in, like, Spider-Man or something? Like, I, I feel like it's mm-hmm. definitely... Yeah, I think they go through uh, Spider-Man's brainwaves or something. I forget, I forget yeah, what it is exactly. Yeah, but. I definitely remember, like, there's synapses and there's, like, 
spider webs in it. But I mean, it's not a, a unique idea to sort of use the credit, but they're not really even opening credits too much, are they? I guess, are there credits running during that part or is it just pure imagery at that I point? It's pure imagery. Yeah, which which I think makes it stand out from something like, you know, Spider-Man or whatever, where it's like a, a sequence, you know, that sort of serves to do something else. It's like, you know, this is like a pure stylistic gambit to, I would say, to orient you into the world of the film, but it is kind of inherently disorienting, which is perhaps the world that uh, you are being oriented into. <laughs> Well, I think the, disorienting the, the beauty of that gem matters, though. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll talk about it in relation to the Killing of a Chinese Bookie when we get there, because because there's an element of Howard and, and certainly the filmmakers as people who appreciate aesthetic beauty. And Kevin Garnett certainly is like, wow, this like he, he sees this thing and he's transfixed by it. And he believes it's this, this kind of totem that's going to bring him good fortune. It's also this peaceful place of possibility and you know wonder that we don't that we're taken out of you know rather crudely through through a colonoscopy and then also then into the world of the movie yeah but yeah this is definitely in there the style of it is have you have you seen much safety stuff keith i was hoping to get through this whole thing without admitting this is the first safety film oh, i've seen man, i mean you're... i know i gotta catch up with the other two or the other ones, there's more than two, but yeah, I love their work. And they did a documentary, another docu- a documentary about basketball called Lenny Cook. That's about a um, prospect who never made it, mm-hmm. and they combined their footage with somebody else's footage that was shot years before, and they did gave it the safety treatment. It's a very abstract, okay. but. V- very affecting and unusual one-of-a-kind sports documentary. But, no, I, but, uh, I'm in. I, I'm definitely, I've been mean, I meant to see Good Time when it came out yeah. and just never got to and it. I, and I like, Heaven Knows What is incredible. All I mean, right. It's, yeah, check it out. I guess one more thing before we move into connections is the New York of the film, the look of it and, and uh, the you know the neighborhood and all that. All those aspects of it. I mean, what did, what did you think of that? I, I loved it. I mean, I don't know that part of New York, and I certainly don't know the upstairs and back rooms of, mm-hmm. of, of those parts mm-hmm. of, of New York, and it was fascinating to go there uh, as well. And, and beyond that, to get to see the auction house and also sort of this this uh, apartment that he keeps, like sort of like, you know, you can kind of see that being the lifestyle of someone like that to keep an apartment in the city next to the stars of good times. Um, <laughs> uh, that's great. Uh, well, I, I just, I, you start, as you mentioned the apartment, I just started laughing because I was remembering the scene where he brings his son up. His son has to go to the bathroom. Uh-huh. It's pee, so pee he, or poop. I know. He has, he has to drop a deuce, but he's got to, uh, he tells him the, the, the opposite so he can go into the apartment by, by himself because it's been, you know, it's obviously uh, this little nest for himself and his mistress but uh that whole thing is so funny to me um but yeah i mean the- and there's also just a, a whole bunch of, of street level scenes you know like keith you're mostly speaking about sets or or you know interiors mm-hmm. but there's there's several scenes of howard just sort of you know stalking the streets of new york looking at his phone or getting his ass kicked on the streets and being thrown in a fountain you know and there's just people everywhere there's this bustling energy that you know highlights the this like super high stakes story taking place amid just a million other potentially high stakes stories that he's just kind of oblivious to and um it contributes to the chaotic feeling of of the film like it's crowd it's a crowded film in its interiors and its exteriors you know like it's a, there's no street that can be crowded like a new york street and the Safties clearly are smart about how they've they've shot those scenes because they're not closed down streets that have are populated by extra by only extras. You know there are extras in there, but there's also a lot of just real people. You know, um, from from what I've read of of the making of this film, like it was it was street level in its production in, in that sense as well. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a little bit of an adjustment for them. Uh, yeah, there, there's a really amazing New Yorker article about the Safties and the making of this movie. But one of the things that was an adjustment for the Safties is they're just not used to working at this kind of a budget level. And so their thing is they like to steal shots. You know, they're Mm -hmm. the type of people who are just going to go in without a permit and kind of capture life as it is and kind of be on that on that level, but you can't really do that when you're doing an Adam Sandler production. So they have to do their version of it, which is I think still quite persuasive. And then you have all the stuff on Long Island and and his life Mm -hmm. there. And you know, it's just, it's just well observed. I mean, the fact that you're only getting this tiny little part of his life. And when you get to this stuff on Long Island, 
it's like he's done there. Like he is, he's trying to redeem himself money wise or whatever he's trying to do in New York with all of it, with his gambling debt and with his, with Julia or whatever. But like whatever excuses he's made in the past, whatever stabs of redemption he's tried, like all that is done <laughs> with his wife, with his daughter, you know, and his attempts to try to patch that up are just so hilariously pathetic that both his wife and his daughter separately kind of just laugh in his face it's like you've got to be kidding yeah. me you know you want to give this another chance or like you're pretending to be a father it's just it's absurd uh, just yeah. just go on just go on and do what you're doing because we're, you've kind of lost us a while ago yeah adina menzel gives such a good over it performance you know like to go back to that that moment at the uh at the kids recital when she has to come out and free him from the trunk like there's just this this great moment where she like her face registers like a moment of surprise but that that just immediately turns (laughs) into like inevitability like oh yeah of course (laughs) i know what's happened here and i'm not engaging (laughs) he's making excuses i mean it's just so ridiculous oh goodness and and of course you know the big laugh line in the film where he's giving her that look and she's like that's the stupidest yeah. expression i've yeah, ever seen you have the stupidest face <laughs> <laughs> oh man but there's there is lots to talk about lots of connections compare and contrast wise between this film and killing of a chinese bookie so after the break we'll uh, talk about those connections I do my research. These guys live near the whalo mines, which primarily is red opals, which aren't worth okay? Oh, okay. But these, these mm. yeah, you can't get your hands on these things, you understand? Really? So look, I say to myself, how do I get a hold of these guys? And I managed to track these guys down. I buy one from them. Holy that is, <laughs> what is that? That's right here. That's the rock. That's the rock. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. There's a lot. John Cassavetes is an influence on the Safties as anybody, as any, you know, street level New York filmmaker owns, owes a certain amount to Cassavetes. Cassavetes is a West Coast guy for most of his career or all of it. Most of it. Most of it. In any case, definitely that independent spirit is the same. But one thing these two films specifically have in common is they both is the gamblers at their center. So how would you kind of compare and contrast those two? I mean, gambling feels like a lot more central to Howard's personality than to Cosmo's. Like if in Chinese Bookie, it feels like it is like a flaw that you know, and like the film acknowledges it as sort of a, a flaw, but it is not so central to who he is you know performance is who he is he's he's uh, concerned with performance more than he is concerned with the thrill of gambling which is clearly what motivates howard from the very beginning like i said with the opal you know and and as and as you pointed out scott he's already clearly deeply into something or multiple things when we meet up with him which is a, another connection as 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 is cosmo but he has gotten out of it like he's gotten fully out of it before doubling down, whereas Howard is constantly doubling down in the midst of other lost bets. So um, it's definitely appropriately to the tone of these two movies. It's a lot more amped up in Uncut Gems, the the gambling aspect in terms of the character. But, you know, they both make the same type of bad decision but howard just makes them in in all aspects of his life like the fact that he has a mistress you know like that's a gamble just everything he does is sort of a you know in pursuit of a big win you know like that's what that's what he wants and he wants a big win and cosmo seems less striving i guess in that way and it's more his gambling seems to come more from a place of sadness or defeat yeah i think you do uh, you're right about identifying their personality i mean about gambling being so central to howard's identity and he does it in so many different ways i i really i like that you say that, that um having this mistress is certainly one way you know he's gambling on <laughs> on his kid and his you know and that and you know not finding out about this stuff and he's um in the final y- scenes he's gambling on these guys not I'm trying to be vague to, to, to not me. harming him yeah har- not harming him which is a decent bet <laughs> that's yes. a good bet but he well, on top he he has a good reason to believe that if he wins what he wins they know the money that he's that he mm-hmm. has going into this. Uh, bet right they know the exact amount sure. that he's gambling and 
that and they and they've sat there sweating <laughs> inside of this 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 uh area that they cannot leave watching the game with him they know that he's won that bet they know that their money is coming to them they're not like well i mean i guess there are other ways to get that money but yeah. like but like you know i think it's a surprise what happens Sure. Really? I mean, no? Could, well, you no, weren't surprised? I, yeah, no, I was totally surprised by that moment. But the, I'm, I'm trying to get my head around. It's a good bet to lock up a pair of tough guys to whom you owe a lot of money uh, in the hopes that you will win the spectacularly far-fetched bet. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, he's really at the. I mean, he is really at the end of his rope at that sure, point of, sure. the, of the movie. But yeah, I mean, but you know, the film is the, the two films have in common, of course, that they t- the, the, the two both Howard and Cosmo are running out of options and have to do has to do, do desperate things that not even they would do that especially even Howard I mean he, you know I'm sure Howard has made many a big crazy bet in his life but I think that at, when we pick up the action and certainly as the action deepens he knows and we know that, that the stakes are extremely high just as high as they are for Cosmo who's being told that he's got to do this terrible thing or else you know I mean the alternative is that he, there's no alternative he's got to do it but what's interesting of course you know contrasting the two two films and this, this speaks to the approach on both parts is is um, how much tension they even care to generate from that because in the Safdie's film and Uncut Gems, the tension is massive. I mean, it's, you, you, you feel it from the beginning. It's an ulcer of a film. And in Killing a Chinese Bookie, it takes its time. It kind of thumbs its nose at paying off in intention and action what you expect it to pay off in. Yeah, but I think that's another place where they're, they're connected as well because I think the Safdie's here set up some things that do not pay off as expected starting starting with the colonoscopy which seems like it's going to be you know you you can map out how that's just going to mm-hmm. land with bitter irony in the final scenes like oh he wins but he has colon cancer but that's not what happens in this movie i think it's it's it really subverts that i think the final twist of course is a is a huge subversion of expectations mm-hmm. uh you know and there's more along the way you could point to as well it is playing with what you think is going to happen in some really clever ways and i'm not sure that in the ways that, that tweak genre expectations in the same way that cassavetes does but it, they, there is there is definitely that sort of irreverence for for what how movies are supposed to work there's a sense of irony that's strong in this sure film. yeah Howard's just also such a more active participant in what's happening to him. Like part of what's compelling about Uncut Gems is sort of figuring out what he's up to. Like like that moment when he goes to pawn Kevin Garnett's ring. It's it's like wait what? Like how how is this going to work? What is what is he seeing here? How does he expect this to play out? Whereas Cosmo, like like I pointed out in the last episode, like he is given step by step instructions of what he has to do to presumably get out of this. And like once he's given them, he kind of procrastinates. Like they have to like kind of grab him and be like, "No, you do this now." Whereas Howard is just like constantly charging along to the next thing. Like I gotta fix this. Here's how I'm gonna fix this. Here, you know, like it, it's this constant forward momentum that is, you know. <laughs> potentially just running off of a cliff, but he is constantly moving in a way where Cosmo is kind of dragging his feet or being pulled, you know, by his nose into fixing this problem that he's created for himself. Yeah, and it's kind of, again, sort of speaks to the priorities of these filmmakers at this moment, right? I mean, like, Cassavetes can make a movie like that. We saw him make, he made it the, the film before Killing of a Chinese Bookie is full of tension and drama, you know, all that you can handle. But here he's kind of stepping back and, and defying expectations. But I think another thing they have in common too, I mean, there's the East Coast, West Coast thing happening, but you know, these are both independent filmmakers to the core. The Safties have never made a film for a studio. I guess they're going to do a 48 Hours uh, remake, but of course, if you recall, you know, the original 48 Hours is pretty not slick. It's very, you know, maybe... No, it's actually a good, it's a good, insofar as it's a good idea for them to do a a studio film, and this is probably good material for them. It is, because, you know, 40 Hours is kind of famously harsh, particularly in terms of racial (laughs) tensions, but but just the look of it is very, it's Walter Hill. But it also speaks to kind of an era of filmmaking that is meaningful to the, the Safdies. They're very much into, you know, the sort of grimy 
you know, Walter Hill, New York, the Abel Ferrara, New York, the William Lustig, New York. I mean, that's kind of like what their films kind of look and feel like. Even though they're made in the 21st century, that part of them feels so much older and so much more connected to an era of filmmaking that that were sort of long past and you're in new york that's you'd think is long past but you just find it in the pockets that aren't times square now i guess yeah or you shoot times square in a different way no so you know there are women in both of these films (laughs) (laughs) and the killing of a chinese bookie and uncut gems and i think both of these men with or without reason kind of consider themselves stylish men ladies men but I'm curious about what that actually means for the women who are in the movies and, and, uh, and how we're supposed to view them. So um, maybe we should get into that. Well, I think Julia Fox's character, Julia, becomes Dinah, his wife, uh, with a decade or so. You know, mm. I, th- I think it's just a you're seeing the, the before and after uh, image of, of people that, that latch on or fall in love with. This Howard. is the honeymoon period of their relationship. Clearly. Uh, and, and, and it's still, I guess running around and, you know, being harangued about where she was and then running around doing uh, crazy errands uh, to serve his gambling addiction. Uh, It still has some sort of romantic appeal to it at this point. But I think think she ends up, you know, were things to progress, uh, be allowed to progress, she would end up in the same position that, that Dinah is over it. Point of clarification, without saying explicitly what happens at at the end, because I don't want to spoil it for our producer, Dan, but Julia comes out pretty well at the end of this movie. Am I correct? Well, okay, I mean, someone's. So th- I mean, I don't know who has claim on the money <laughs> at that point. You know, yeah. I mean, she. I, did, I mean, she would. She's in possession of it. Yeah, I, sure. You know? I mean, who, so yeah. I, so that's that's interesting. That, <laughs> kind of spoils, <laughs> spoils it a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> I think Dan's um, like, mm, yeah, I kind of figure out. I kind of think who has uh, possession of the money. Uh, probably gives you some hint yeah. as to what happens. I mean, and it's interesting in the context of the relationship that I think both of these male characters have with the women in their life, which is that they do view them as a certain extent as possessions or as a piece of their own identity. I think there is really something to the relationship between Cosmo and Rachel. Like I do think there is affection on on both sides there. But I'm I'm struck by like the shot where we're introduced to her when he is kind of going through the dressing room and kind of talking to everyone and she's just one in a, a line of girls. But he like puts his hand on her left breast slash heart, you know, and he just kind of like keeps his hand on this part of her body in a very possessive way as he's sort of like just making small talk with her. And similarly, like Howard kind of keeps Julia to a certain extent, like he's her employer, Mm -hmm. you know, he he gives her this apartment. Um, He does that God awful thing where he surprises her in the it went by hiding in the closet. Men, listen. <laughs> like if you don't know this, any surprise where you jump out at a woman and scare her is just a bad idea. Don't do it ever. It's not cute. How that didn't backfire. It's just incredible. I know. It's like the one thing that he does that's like, oh boy, this is going to go real bad. And he kind of does it. That's another, another scene gamble. I thought. Another gamble. <laughs> yeah, that's another scene also where I feel like they're playing against expectations. Like, I thought she's going to walk in with her boyfriend or, mm-hmm. you know, some other some other man or something. And But but no. 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 Yeah. I think both of these men do think of women to a certain extent as accessories, possessions, or they have a certain amount of control over them. But at the same time, there is a real sense of affection there, maybe love, but in the case of Julia, like she's such an enabler of, of what Howard does that it's hard to say if if he loves her or he loves that she loves what he does, you know? It's it's all it's all very mixed up, which is why I say it's it's interesting and I think I think I like that Julia comes out uh, at the end, in in possession of everything that Howard achieved of his of his big his big reach his his dream, you know she she winds up in possession of it. That's kind of cool, I think. Yeah, and of course another defying expectations kind of bit is her in the casino with this with this stranger who you think is just gonna <laughs> is gonna be do something terrible yep. to her. <laughs> 
and and he's he's it turns out to be kind of a stand up guy, you know, just and, really annoying. Well, he well he's got like a history. He's like that guy is a, sort of a legend in the Diamond District, you know, mm. area, uh, and he's kind of a character in his own right, which is kind of explains his casting in this. I don't want to move away from Cosmo without also talking about the scene where Rachel comes in while he's auditioning another dancer, and he. Well, well, this is the thing: is the camera kind of cuts away and uh, and makes it hard to tell exactly the choreography of that scene. Like you mm-hmm. know, we just know that there is a scuffle and she ends up on the floor. But again, kind of going back to a point I made in the in the last episode, the film isn't sort of reveling in that moment of violence. You know, it's uh, it's not looking away either, but it's making it disorienting and confusing in a way that feels authentic to what the experience would be. I'm glad that it's handled that way. If there does have to be a, a scene where, uh, you know, a man hits his lover, that it is not done in a in a way where we have to dwell on her suffering. But, you know, there is also the fact that it happens and mm-hmm. that it is in the film, which is, I think, again, kind of just tied up in the the male perspective that both of these films hold, which is going to have an effect on their female characters and their lack of an interior life to a certain extent. And yeah, we don't see that kind of, that's all we get of him as someone who is angry and, you know, uh, impulsive and violent like, like that. And we, even we don't even get that in the scene where he's supposed to be violent with the guns. You, you get it in that moment. And it's kind of an, you know, a weird irony. This is Killing Your Chinese Book I'm talking about. Where it's like, I think that Rachel is, has actually misread that situation, right? I mean, I think you yeah. you expect that you know, that him taking this pretty waitress back to the burlesque place off hours for a private audition. I mean, that, that just does not get more unseemly than that. But her read on it is, is probably is not really the correct one. I don't think, I think that, that legitimately was him trying to audition her and had nothing. It was not really anything beyond that. Uh, anyway, but that's kind of a sidetrack, but it's just it's just a point where the film kind of... I mean, I think it's actually kind of a segue into another connection that is kind of part of this connection, which is these characters' perceptions of them as themselves as a, as a ladies' man to a certain extent. And with that scene of Cosmo auditioning uh, that, that waitress, like, immediately before that, like, she is very eager to audition for him. And he he rejects her at first. He's like, you don't want to do that or something. Mm -hmm. So there's the question of why he changes his mind. And it could be because like he sees something in her that's good for his show. But based on on what we see in her, you know, leaping around the stage and him telling her you can stop leaping now. (laughs) Uh, Like, like my read is more that, you know, he is faced with this woman who is throwing herself at him. And it's sort of like, okay, well, I have to pick up this ball and run with it because I am this smooth operating nightclub owning ladies man. And that's what I do, you know, and this is maybe tied up in my read of him as just being constantly performing a a character that he has created for himself. But, you know, I think that moment is him doing what he perceives a ladies man to do. Yeah, I wonder if it's tied to like the era to some extent. Too, because because you know when he goes out on that night on the town with three of his employees, um, yeah. three of these ladies, it reminded me so much of Robert De Niro's famous entrance in Mean Streets as Johnny Boy with you know a girl under each arm, you know, mm-hmm. and it just it was such a de- character defining moment for this guy who's just another rascal in low life to some extent. Um, it's like this status thing for him to be in this situation. Um, and it's it's communicating something to us that feels very much like grounded in whatever was going on in the seventies in terms of under, our understanding of what masculinity was. You know, um, anyway, I to, to connect back to the performative stuff too. I mean, I feel like there's a little bit of that with Howard as well. It's, I mean, does he really want to be out on a weeknight? late in the night seeing the weekend with like people who are, are much younger than him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, someone who's like trying to stay at the party too long is, uh, I, I really think in his heart of hearts, he would be happier at home watching the basketball game. Although I don't know if he could ever yeah, be happy he, watching a basketball game. Yeah. Uh, it's too much writing. Well, I mean, it. maybe there's also a sense too, like it's time for him to die. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean, these are, these are both kind of death haunted films, but it's yeah. like, it's like, this is, this is somebody who, who's, um, 
a little long in the tooth to be acting like this and to be living a life like this. Mm-hmm. And your nature is kind of like <laughs> killing him like a wounded gazelle or something, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, like, we're talking about Howard? We're talking about Howard, yeah. Or, I mean, I, I guess it kind of applies to, to both of them, especially if you sort of uh, look at Cosmo as maybe someone who is maybe aging out of the the world he has positioned himself in like there's that line about the the skirts are getting longer you know like uh (laughs) we're we're kind of on the the cusp of second wave feminism and like obviously porn and strippers aren't going to go away but the era of masculinity that he has modeled himself after is uh perhaps waning a bit so the the idea that he has to use your phrase a little long in the tooth maybe comes through. I mean, there yeah, as I mean well. the Crazy Horse is not a a hip thriving enterprise. Yeah. It's it, it's God no. Yeah, it's really it's really on its last legs, and so um and so we kind of chase that in these films of these guys kind of fighting this you know last battle against fate that has almost properly been assigned to them. Uh, let's talk about the bets themselves. You know, a little bit because we see that Cosmo is probably a pretty crappy poker player and mm-hmm. he's in and because he's settled up this big debt at the beginning of the film, I think he's feeling like he can just comfortably throw his money around and he ends up throwing a whole lot of it around and going 23,000 in the hole on a bad bet. But the, the irony, the big irony of Uncut Gems is that as crazy as the bets are that Howard makes including one that gets the the legendary Mike Francesa to tell him that's, that it was like the worst bet he's ever heard or something. And he goes, I disagree, uh, which is, this, I think, the most memeable element of the movie. Those bets pay off. They just don't actually pay off, which is a fun right. part of the movie. Like he, he has that first bet with, well, the Opal, but that's one thing. But he has the first bet with Francesa that he can't collect on because because it's canceled by his debtors um yeah. bef- before he can before he can take that money down and it's a crazy bet with lots of props you know it's a prop bet with lots of elements to it both big bets are about winning the opening tip which is insane by the way <laughs> those are <laughs> legitimately insane and then the second if bet they don't get the tip they don't get that then the rest of the bet is irrelevant right I think so right. yeah that yeah. was my understanding Wow. Which is nuts. You, I don't even want to think about it. But yeah, so so these are crazy, crazy bets. But they they pay off and they don't pay off. You know. So uh, what do you make of that? In Killing of a Chinese Bookie, there really is just the one bet, and it goes bad, and it goes bad pretty early, and you just kind of carry that sense of defeat with you. Cosmo carries that sense of defeat with him through the film. You know, the only sort of victory moment he gets as it relates to his gambling is like the very first scene where he pays off his debt. And that's not really any sort of victory. (laughs) You you know, he has this brief moment where he's walking tall and bringing corsages to ladies, sipping champagne, and then it's, it's over. And you don't necessarily return to that moment of excitement if it was ever there whereas uncut gems you're kind of brought there again and again that thrill of victory that that howard feel not again and again but you're brought there a, a few times and then it is kind of taken away from him and by extension us through through circumstances so it creates this sense of imbalance and excitement that the Chinese bookie doesn't have like I mean that film is a lot of things I don't think it is necessarily a particularly exciting film yeah. <laughs> certainly not in, in the way that Uncut Gems is because it does play into these emotional highs and lows that Howard is going through in in these wins and losses well the other difference too between the characters is that Cosmo doesn't look like a man who's lost everything there's a part of him that wants to still be cool and keep this keep his mm-hmm. composure and and um, he's not crushed I mean can you imagine if Howard were in that spot where he just like you know he would he'd not he wouldn't stop talking for one at the table but then but then you know if he were to lose that kind of money he would be he would be desperate and he would he would make a scene and you'd know all about it and that's not cosmo at all i mean he's trying to it'd be obviously he feels it and we feel it and we feel the harsh light of day when he emerges from that 
situation and the women are driven home and that sort of thing. And there's something kind of, you never want to see the, the sunrise after that kind of a situation. But that's a different feeling than, than what we get in Uncut Gems, where you feel it constantly, how bad a scene it is for him. Yeah, I, I wonder, with both these characters, I know it's outside the scope of the movie, but was there ever a time before they were this way? I, I would venture a guess not. Although, you know, at some point, I guess, both of them had to put their businesses together and, and couldn't just be throwing it all away all the time. I mean, yeah, I mean, uh, Howard had to make a life for himself mm-hmm. with a nice home, you know? I mean, he has some sort of reputation as a, as a jeweler, you know? I think it's interesting that Uncut Gems is set in 2012, ostensibly out of necessity in order to be able to include these real-world games with Kevin Garnett, who is retired now. But because we're, like, positioned in the near past... I think at least I kind of had a sense that Howard is someone who is sort of on the waning edge of his career, you know, like, like he used to be a bigger shot, not quite a Jacob the jeweler type, but you know, like he was someone that people knew and people went to for these iced out Furby, (laughs) (laughs) you know, but the reaction that everyone has to that ridiculous Furby necklace is maybe where I kind of get that sense that he is a little out of date. He doesn't really understand what is actually fashionable or or in demand in the world of high-end celebrity jewelers. You you get the sense that Lakeith Stanfield's character is losing patience with him because of that, too, because he's just someone who's lost his his step. Yeah, like like he thinks he's a little cheesy, you Mm -hmm. know, and like maybe Howard was always a little cheesy. Or maybe, you know, the world has just passed him by a little bit. It's it's kind of hard to say. But to your question, Keith, I think that it's very believable that both of these characters were riding much higher in the in the recent past than when we meet up with them. One little incidental thing about Uncut Gems that I liked and started to think about was the fact that these jewelry stores are connected in the you know, you go to this hallway and the Diamond District. In the Diamond District. And then, and, then, and then you start to think, wow, this is like probably one big conspiracy happening, right? A bunch of people working together to turn a profit. I mean, which is why he's able to operate still um, as he does with other people in that business. We, why, why he's able to get credit for this hawked Kevin Garnett ring. Why, why Julie is able to get access to the store next door to make the right. money exchange. I mean, there's like, they all have worked together for a while and, and maybe that there's, you know, this um, mutually beneficial arrangement where they're all kind of shaking down the, you know, or making money anyway, maximizing the amount of money they can make out of the people who come to that area to buy jewelry. But it's just, that was, that's just another movie I was making in my head uh, while I, <laughs> while I was watching it. But I just found that specific detail to be kind of fascinating because I, you know, it's just a behind the scenes touch that i didn't know anything about it's kind of neat there's a lot of that in uncut gems like you you were just rattling off some betting lingo and insight that is way outside of my experience you know and that's a, a whole other world that exists in this film that i guess it kind of is a movie about that world but like killing of a chinese bookie it's actually a movie about this character and the the world around them holds lots of potentially interesting other movies well, The Killing of a Chinese Bookie is widely available on streaming services, but uh, we should know that there's a shorter version that may not have music in it, Keith, right? <laughs> yeah, and actually, is Seymour Cassell in the movie because he wasn't the cut? No, I'm kidding. Uh-huh. The yeah, so so we would recommend, even though it's not currently on the Criterion channel as it was several months ago, you can buy the Criterion disc or get it from the library <laughs> as Jeremy did. did. And, uh, and uh, the Criterion has a number of other Cassavetes films as well. Uncut Jebs is in theaters now, but and it's going to be on Netflix at the end of January if you can wait. Why would you wait? It's very exciting to see on a big screen. That said, if you see it in a theater, you can't get up and walk around and give yourself a break. <laughs> so, you know, if that's something that you need for yourself... Take that into account. Self-care. We care. <laughs> Self-care is important for our, our listeners. Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we've seen in the interim since our last podcast. We call it your next picture show in the hopes it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Keith. 
What in the film world has been good for you lately? So as I mentioned last time, I was, I've was i been writing a best war movies list for a publication called Vulture. Have you heard of it, Genevieve? Do you know it? All right. Uh, vul- yes. Yes, I, th- I have. All right. So it's, it's allowed me to, you know, obviously a lot of stuff I, I knew already, uh, but I, I wanted to check out what are widely considered some of the, the better war movies. And it means I have got to catch up with some stuff I'd never seen before. Like to my shame, run silent, run deep. Uh, does any of you guys know this movie? 1958 submarine thriller. And it's actually a pretty good connection to our devil feature of the night because it's not about gambling, but it's definitely about obsessive characters who, who take huge risks. And this case, that is a, uh, an experienced, uh, submarine commander, uh, played by Clark Gable, who in the first scene, uh, loses his sub to a, uh, a Japanese boat, um, and he takes over command a year later. A year passes, and he and at this point uh, he takes over command of another submarine that was sort of the heir apparent to it was Lieutenant Commander played by Burt Lancaster. And what plays out, uh, what comes apparent as they, they, he puts this, this crew through through drill after drill is he he has a very specific plan in mind. It isn't necessarily a safe plan or necessarily, isn't necessarily the plan that he was ordered to pursue by the military, but it involves getting revenge for what's happened to him. So that's itself. I'm just a peek into, into sub life is pretty fascinating too, but the tension between Gable and Lancaster, it plays out in ways that you would not expect it to because there's sort of uh, subcurrents of loyalties that run through the the crew, which is again, it's made up of uh, some more great faces. Uh, Jack Ward, and Don Rickles in a very young John Don Rickles in a dramatic role. It is a very tense movie. I found it highly enjoyable. I should mention it's, it's directed by Robert Wise. It's a good looking movie. I would I would definitely recommend it. Uh, Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah, I wanted to recommend Dark Waters uh, by a, a, this obscure filmmaker named Todd Haynes. I mean, I don't. It's it, it has been an extremely good fall for movies. Fall and winter, mm-hmm. lots of things to see. Lots of films for people to talk about. So inevitably in situations like that, uh, uh, good films get lost in the shuffle. And this is one of them. This is because, uh, I mean, this is Todd Haynes, one of our, one of our great American filmmakers, right? Keith Enright? Yeah, Todd. Uh, for, sure. Yes. Yeah, um, for sure. Very, very good. Um, I think people are probably surprised um, at the subject matter of this film, which which is maybe more reminiscent of films like Aaron Brockovich or A Civil Action or that one Gus Van Sant thing that nobody <laughs> Promised Land was it that one? Was Promised called? Land, yeah. Promised Land. This is maybe his. We know about fracking. That's, this is that's right. This one. is Haynes's Promised Land kind of. But um, you know, it's done through participant media that d- does a lot of sort of activist films. I mean, and, and if I were to say, if you were to show this film to be without a director credit, I would not necessarily be able to say, "Hey, I recognize that. That's a Todd Haynes movie." So it is a departure for him and. A certain respects that is it is subtly very stylish as Ed Lockman did the photography and there's a lot of really good touches and it's very dark it's called Dark Waters is a dark film, um, but you know if you think about it you know this is a film about a, you know a, a, an attorney played by Mark Ruffalo he's a corporate lawyer who takes on this case against Dupont which has been there he's accusing of dumping this extraordinarily dangerous chemical into into the, into the water that is that is doing horrible horrible damage to cows to humans to everyone it can't be broken down it's very frightening stuff so uh and it's about his pursuit against you know it's an underdog case so in that sense it is Aaron Brockovich or a civil action where they are up against this corporate giant but if you think about it in terms of Haynes's career it kind of ends up being a more practically minded version of safe because safe of course starts with Julianne Moore being afraid of chemicals, of being afraid of of having kind of this vague environmental uh, sickness, and um, and this is that, but not part in her imagination or partially in her in the imagination at all, but something quite real. And um, I connected with this film is just it's a great acting, it's a great vehicle for Mark Ruffalo as an actor. I think it's it's a story very well told, very stylishly told. And it's the type of film that I think people would would get into. Is is it is it major Todd Haynes? Is it something is it something that people are going to talk about in the same breath? You know, as safe or, or, or Velvet Goldmine or, or I'm not there. Um, 
No, but it deserved a better shake than it's gotten. So it seems like he's kind of in in a. It's been a problem for the last couple of films because I haven't seen this one yet. Um, for you know, it's just it. I just haven't seen it yet. Uh, End of the year rush. Uh, but um, Wonderstruck a couple years ago seemed to kind of fall off without much notice. I think that's a really good movie too, which I haven't seen. Yeah, see, all right. <laughs> I know it's absurd. It's sitting there on Amazon. It's probably why I haven't seen it. It's why haven't I seen it? It's Todd Haynes. So um, it, it might be a hard one for listeners to. I probably should, it's a weird thing to recommend because at this point it's going to be hard for listeners to check it out. It's probably going to be sort of a little bit between theaters and home video at the, at that point. But it's worth a look. It's quite effective. It's on baseline. It's a very strong docudrama, but I think it's got a little more going for it than that. Dark Waters. Uh, Genevieve? So I'm going to recommend something that's film adjacent, but kind of hard to categorize under any one specific medium. Um, It's a feature length Netflix comedy special that's a recording of a one man play that ran off Broadway in 2018, starring one Mike Birbiglia, uh, who has made a name for himself in this sort of undefined space between stand up and long form storytelling. Uh, this new one is called, appropriately, The New One, uh, a title whose meaning becomes a little more apparent as the story Birbiglia is telling unfolds. Uh, and it's kind of tough to talk about exactly what that story is without giving too much away. So I'll just say the setup involves the question of whether Birbiglia and his wife should have children, given his myriad personal issues, uh, beginning with the sleep behavior disorder that was the center of Birbiglia's breakout story, Sleepwalk With Me, uh, but extending well beyond that. It's Pretty relatable subject matter made very specific to Birbiglia's experience, but what's really interesting about the new one is how it stretches the boundaries of stand-up performance, uh, not just in the way that Birbiglia weaves a long-form story that can't really be broken down into specific bits, but also the way it uses the stage, uh, which, again, (laughs) telling you too much would risk spoiling one of the best moments of the special. It also kind of creates an interesting wrinkle in the context of Birbiglia's persona, which is really affable and kind of presents as nice guy, but reveals itself over the course of his stories to have a much harder edge. You know, he doesn't back away from difficult subjects or exploring ideas that might make him look bad, nor is he afraid to go long stretches without reaching for a laugh line. Because of that, I've been a big fan of his work for a long time, but I feel like the new one is maybe uh, the best encapsulation of what makes him distinct as a comedian specifically and a storyteller more generally. Uh, It's been over a month since I watched it, and yet I found myself returning to certain moments in my head again and again since then. So, you know, if you haven't caught it, I would highly recommend checking out Mike Birbiglia, the new one, which is streaming on Netflix. I'm really interested in that. There seems to be a nice kind of series of shows like this. I mean, obviously, Nanette's a big one, but the one that just absolutely crushed me a, a couple of years ago was, was Chris Gethard's Career Suicide, which is one of the best, <laughs> anything, anything I've, one of the best television specials I've ever seen. I think it's ext- incredible to watch. It was a filming of a one-man show, but just that, yeah. to, get some, to get something that is revealing of a person's life that's super intimate, but also really, really funny, it's, it's a different feeling and it's nice it's it, it yeah. doesn't feel as canned i mean you know as good as even great comedians who come up with amazing segues from one bit to another i mean they're still segway segues from one bit to another mm-hmm. they're not telling a yeah. story and yeah they're, they're doing a set list you know mm-hmm. uh, and uh that's not what Biglia does and he doesn't do it very well here <laughs> And that's it for this edition of The Next Picture Show. Our next pairing will come out January 14th and January 21st. Keith, what's coming up next? We'll be spending two weeks with the March family when we pair Greta Gerwig's new adaptation of Louisa May Alcott's much-adapted classic, Little Women, with a beloved previous adaptation, the 1994 version directed by Gillian Armstrong. It'll be a battle to the death. Shorsha Ronan versus Winona Ryder. Florence Pugh versus Kirsten Dunst. Claire Danes versus Eliza Scanlon. Who will survive? Well, some, some of them don't survive, but we'll get into that tragic story detail and more with our next pairing. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of The Killing of a Chinese Bookie, Uncut Gems, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts in future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. We may post your response on Facebook for discussion or read it on a future episode of the show. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can you find everyone these days 
Genevieve. I am the deputy TV editor at Vulture. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Genevieve Kosky. And I believe by the time you hear this, you will be able to hear me on another podcast, podcast like it's 1999, talking about the Freaks and Geeks episode, The Little Things, which is the second to last episode chronologically and the last episode filmed of that series. So I, they're doing a a series going through every episode, and that's the one I came on for. Which it was, one was a, that one? A cool, a cool decision. That is the one where Seth Rogen's character Ken discovers that his new girlfriend oh, was yeah. born an intersex woman, um, and it is also the one where uh, Sam breaks up with his girlfriend Cindy. That's a, so, that's a uh, good it's, one. It's a, it's a it's it's a very interesting kind of all over the place episode which we we get into so it's yeah, a, it's that, that it's that one good episode of freaks and geeks <laughs> yeah right <laughs> uh, yeah, it, yeah. The, okay uh, keith what about you oh um well i'm a freelance writer you can find me in such uh places as well, vulture you can find me at fangoria you can find me at the ringer you can find me at mel magazine you can find me on twitter at kfips 3000 and uh i'm gonna turn things over to you scott how about you uh you can find me on twitter at scott underscore tobias uh you can find my work at uh npr uh new york times uh the ringer and other fine publications. I'm also the editor-in-chief of Oscilloscope's Musings blog. Our usual co-host, Tasha Robinson, you can find her on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. And she is the film and TV editor for Polygon. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can also contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, please consider it. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. And while you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners and keep the show going. Thanks to Dan the Snake Jakes for his assistance producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the film spotting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Music